Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. It's Friday, July 29th. After the Supreme Court overturned the constitutional right to abortion one month ago, some in Colorado are now working to expand access. Others are trying to push back. KUNC's Bill Baker spoke to reporter Lee Patterson about efforts and attitudes in Walt County. Let's start back in April when Weld County Commissioner Lori Sane tried to introduce a local sanctity of life resolution to the Board of County Commissioners. During that meeting, the board decided not to consider it. Where is that resolution now? Sane is planning to introduce a tweaked resolution at some point soon, possibly in August. She's been working with local faith groups, she says, and shared a draft with me a couple of weeks ago. The resolution basically says that the Weld County Board of Commissioners believes that when the Constitution refers to a person's right to life and liberty, that unborn children are included in that definition of person. So this resolution wouldn't prompt any concrete changes in Weld County. That's what uh, Sane says. And there's no legal challenge associated with it. Sane explained that what it does do is that it represents a shift in philosophy and attitude in the county and basically affirms that unborn humans have value and that their lives start at conception. This sounds a little bit like when commissioners voted to designate Weld County as a Second Amendment sanctuary county. That was back in in 2019. Yeah, yeah. In that instance, they were reiterating their support for the Second Amendment. And that was around the same time as Colorado was passing a controversial new gun law. That designation as a Second Amendment sanctuary county was largely symbolic. Many, many conservative counties in the state did something similar, although the sheriff does have some discretion over which gun laws are enforced, so it's not entirely symbolic. But yes, there are some parallels between the Second Amendment sanctuary county designation and this um, sanctity of life resolution. Now, It's important to also note that Sane is a Republican who had been running to represent Colorado's new 8th Congressional District. She lost that primary last month, but she had been campaigning heavily on the issue of abortion. So Sane's position is clear. Lee, with the Supreme Court's decision on abortion sending the issue back to states, does Weld County even have the authority to make resolutions around abortion? You know, I checked in with the county attorney, and he didn't have much to say on this other than to point out that the Board of County Commissioners decided not to consider this the first time around. I did talk with Commissioner Scott James, who is one of the five. He wouldn't comment on the draft resolution directly, but but broadly, he said this. We have no rule. It's that simple. He points out that with the recent Dobbs decision, the Supreme Court sent abortion back to states, not county governments, and that Colorado has a new law that affirms the right to abortion here. It's a matter of state law now, a woman's access to abortion. Uh, it is simply not the purview or the role of county government to, discover, to, to discuss that. We don't usurp state law. Okay, so there's some recognition there on not stepping on state authority. Let's pivot, Lee. What are faith groups in Weld County saying about the issue of abortion? 
you know, I called around and some organizations didn't respond or really didn't want to talk about the topic. The local government in Weld County does consult with a faith council, which is made up mostly of Christians. They meet and talk every month about issues like housing, adoption, supporting fathers and supporting young people. Commissioner James is the one who goes to those meetings and then reports back to the rest of the council. Abortion has been on the agenda for the past few months. They've talked about the resolution and the role of county government. The last time he met with them, Commissioner James left it like this. I asked them, uh, separate from the abortion issue, to talk about uh, that which might be available in the faith community, in the nonprofit community, and uh, truly through the Well Department of Public Health, uh, uh, what might be available as far as resources go for a woman who uh, was experiencing an unattended pregnancy and chose life. So not necessarily funding support services or increasing support services, but he's urging awareness here. Yeah, that's right. Lee, we appreciate your reporting on all this. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome. A wildfire toured through Superior in December. The flames destroyed hundreds of homes before they were extinguished the next day. But the fire left its fingerprints on homes all over town. Even months later, residents whose homes were unscathed had a smoky taste and smell in their water. As KUNC's Alex Hager reports, that required an expensive fix, the likes of which could be more common for towns and cities across the West. It's a cool, windy day in the foothills. Ripples and waves are blowing across the little reservoir outside of Superior's water treatment plant. Just a few months ago, this place was cornered by flames. All that was, was under fire as, as a grass fire and, and moving and blowing you know, towards us. That's Alex Arinello, the town's public works director. He says a lot of that charred debris landed in this pond. And even though it's small, the water in it reaches a lot of people. If you are turning on a tap in a home or a business in Superior, there's like a 100% chance that that water passed through this reservoir? Oh, yes. Yeah, it all comes it all comes through here. After it passes through that holding pond, it's piped in here, where the water treatment plant removes all the stuff that makes you sick. Under normal conditions, that is all it takes to deliver tasteless, odorless water. But after the fire, it just wasn't enough. The ash gets through. It's, maybe it's microscopic and... Not, uh, you know, these are chemicals that maybe it's not reacting with those, those chemicals. To be clear, the water is safe to drink. It passes all the necessary tests. But Arinello says his department heard from residents upset with the way it tastes and smells. And they call us all the time. This is, the water's terrible and I can't take a shower. You know, they're very afraid about the water. So we're, we're trying to alleviate those fears. Superior is trying to do that by installing big tanks that'll add an extra layer of purification. Just down the road from here, scientists have been working to figure out exactly what kind of filter to put in those tanks. But first, Anthony Kennedy is starting with the cause of the problem. We think this is the source of kind of the taste and odor issues. So you can, I mean, you can kind of stick your head in there if you want. It's a big bag full of stuff pulled out of the reservoir. Little bits of brown grass and brush, mostly charred and black around the edges. And it smells like a campfire. The folks here at Corona Environmental Consulting were contracted by Superior to figure out how to get that smell out. So they've been pushing the water through tubes and pumps to test different kinds of filters. And a clear winner has emerged. 
we're looking at granular activated carbon, which essentially looks like black sand, very uniform black sand. That black sand is the same thing that's in your Brita filter at home, and all the tiny burned bits, they stick to the surface of this granular activated carbon and take out the smoky taste. But this whole project is not cheap. Just installing the tanks and pipes for the carbon cost the town one and a half million dollars. But in this town of only 13,000 people, that's a big enough chunk of the budget that other projects had to get put on the back burner. Similar problems and expenses could be on the way for other communities across the western U.S. where wildfires are encroaching. It starts with recognizing that this is likely to be of concern and impact you. Chad Seidel runs the environmental consulting firm working with Superior. He's also an adjunct at the University of Colorado, where he got his Ph.D. studying water quality issues. He says wildfires are no longer just a problem deep in the woods. And they just keep getting closer and closer to home. And the conditions under which we experience them are just more and more often. And so communities who might have thought, oh, we're not really in the forest. We don't have to worry about wildfires. That's not the case. Other scientists agree. Climate experts point to the fire that hit Superior as a warning sign that climate change is pushing fires closer to cities and towns and the infrastructure that keeps them running. In Superior, Colorado, I'm Alex Hager. Northern Colorado is celebrating Pride this month, and one initiative is focusing on the impacts LGBTQ plus people have had in the region. The Northern Colorado Queer Memory Project was founded in 2021 to share their stories. KUNC Samantha Kutsia spoke with founder Tom Dunn. He's been studying query history since 2005. So to start, can you talk a little bit about why you created the Northern Colorado Queer Memory Project? Certainly. Um, The Queer Memory Project is in response to uh, a longstanding problem across the country and across the world, and that's the inability of LGBTQ folks to have access to their past and to have access to their memories. Um, There's a bunch of reasons for that, but I've found that it's particularly true in parts of the country that are not uh, major metropolitan areas, parts of the country that are far away from the coast. Um, And so a lot of LGBTQ youth and a lot of LGBTQ adults in this part of the country end up thinking um, wrongly that there is uh, no LGBTQ history here. Uh, And so part of the work of the Queer Memory Project is to um, do that recovery work, to preserve uh, those memories to rediscover lost memories, uh, and then most importantly, to share those out back into the community. And also to send a positive message to LGBTQ people living in Northern Colorado today that this is a place that's always been a little bit queer. Absolutely. And as you mentioned, the project really does focus on the queer history in smaller cities and towns in this area. Why did you decide to focus more on uh, quote unquote rural parts of the state? In part, uh, there are other great um, organizations and institutions in the state that have done really good work in the last couple of years to tell the story about Boulder's LGBTQ history or Denver's LGBTQ history, but other parts of the state have really not had that attention. Partially, that's because there hasn't been time and energy and resources there to do that work. And um, so I'm positioned at Colorado State University, and that gives me some resources 
uh, to do that. And so we really think it's important for us to step into that, that void and, and make sure those stories are, are preserved before they're lost. Absolutely. And we're talking a lot about stories here. And I'm also thinking about the archival component of this project. Can you just touch on why it's so important to share stories of the past? Well, absolutely. Sharing stories of the past is, is always important um, for one reason. As, as a communication scholar, which I identify as, um, it's the raw materials we use to make arguments about our present and the future that we want to be, uh, the future that we want to have. Um, the stories of our past help shape the challenges that we've um, help us. The stories of our past help us remember the challenges that we faced. They help us um, understand the challenges we're likely to face in the future. They give us inspiration in difficult times to come together and know that we can uh, overcome obstacles again uh, when we, we run into them. Uh, and that's true both at the community level, but also at the level of uh, individuals. Um, we have an entire generation of LGBTQ young people um, who are charting their own queer lives right now, who are facing headwinds um, nationally um, and uh, regionally, laws that tell them not to talk about who they are, not to uh, try to understand this kind of information about themselves and who they want to be. And so having these resources available to communities, but also to individuals who are making their own journeys of self-discovery is really vital and really important. Um, in, in some ways, we hope it saves lives because not being able to know your past uh, can be a death sentence, um, both to individuals and communities. Thank you for that. And briefly, what are you hoping people will take from this project? My hope is, as I said before, that people recognize Northern Colorado is a, a rich and complex and interesting uh, LGBTQ place, that there have been uh, powerful and important LGBTQ lives here, uh, and that uh, this community uh, owes it to the LGBTQ people who have been pioneers here to continue to make progress towards making Northern Colorado an LGBTQ welcoming and inclusive place. Tom Dunn is founder and director of the Northern Colorado Queer Memory Project. Tom, thank you so much for being on the program this morning. Thanks again for having me. The Colorado Dream is a podcast from KUNC, hosted by Stephanie Daniel. It shares the stories of Coloradans who are overcoming obstacles to create a better life for themselves and their families in an effort to achieve the American dream. Season two is coming to KUNC on Friday, August 5th. Here's a sneak peek at the Colorado Dream. Newcomers, welcome. In Aurora, Colorado, about one in five residents is foreign born. And while most come from Mexico, many hail from other parts of the world, including thousands from the continent of Africa. I immigrated to the U.S. like everybody does for a better life. What the imagination does to you, you know, you build up this picture in your head and, and the life that you're possibly going to live. Since 2015, Aurora has publicly welcomed immigrants, while other cities across the country have taken steps to shut them out. Our city leaders at the time, intentionally, you know, they make a very important decision that in the last 20 years, they realize uh, we have a new face of the city. The Colorado Dream is a podcast from KUNC. 
this season explores the Black immigrant experience in Aurora. The diversity, the love, the way people welcome you, to me was amazing. Aurora wrapped its arms around me, and yeah, it's been home ever since. And we hear about some of the unique challenges these immigrants face. There's a tension between the African immigrant and the black community. Why? Because of misconception and assumption from both parts. A first-generation African kid, my child can tell you that, goes to school acting like an American, and then comes home and has to act like an African kid. To help newcomers succeed, the city created a plan called Aurora is Open to the World and partnered with dozens of organizations that provide services like small business loans. Our goal is to become that one-stop shop that anything or everything uh, individual family of immigrant or refugee may need. As resource, they could come here. But is the plan helping those most in need? I don't know how much I feel about Aurora being welcoming to newcomers. It more so had to do with the affordability of Aurora, in my opinion, than it had to do with Aurora wanting immigrants and refugees in their city. The series is told through the eyes of one African immigrant. I've lived here 22 years and I've seen the inequality that exists. But I've come to realize that the American dream is a facade, but it's also not a facade. And the city of Aurora and its residents that are working to become an inclusive home for all. We are in these things we call journey. We are doing our part and uh, some of us got to do our part to better the life of our next generation. I'm Stephanie Daniel. Join me as I explore the Black immigrant experience in Aurora on the new season of The Colorado Dream from KUNC. Season two, Newcomers Welcome, is coming August 5th to KUNC.org or wherever you get your podcasts. That's all for today on Colorado Edition. You can catch the Colorado Edition podcast every Friday, so please hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. Our theme music is composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Other music in the show by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. Thank you for spending some time with KUNC's Colorado Edition. See you next week. <laughs>